Today's scripture is from the book of Genesis, chapter 22, verses 1 through 18. Please remain standing. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day. On the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Carol, for reading that for us. Good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is so good to see you, good to be with you. 
Uh, Good to see your faces today. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad uh, that of all the places you could be on this beautiful morning that you chose to be here. Turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. We've been in the middle of a series, I believe this is our fifth week now in this series, looking at the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And today, as we come to Genesis chapter 22, uh, we are completing our study of the, uh, of the character of Abraham. We'll move on uh, next week. But in this kind of final chapter of Abraham's life, we come across this story that is so famous infamous even to some, so famous and so familiar, but so unusual. If you grew up in or around the church and are familiar with this story, its familiarity actually uh, removes the unusual nature of the story that's being communicated to us. But what we find in this chapter is a very fitting end to uh, to the encounter that we've had with the person of Abraham. And as we were paying attention to uh, the reading of God's Word this morning, as we pick up the story, we're picking it up some 40 years after the initial appearance of God to Abraham when he was 75 years old. He's in Ur of the Chaldeans. He's with his family. He's in the familiar comforts of his homeland and his people and everything that he knew. God appeared to him and called him out of that place. And now here we are, 40 plus years after that moment, he and Sarah have been waiting all of this time for a son. The promised son that God had guaranteed to them, the person through whom the inheritance ultimately was going to be given to Abraham. And if you remember that that as that promise was initially given to Abraham and Sarah, they could hardly believe their ears at what it was they were being told, so much so that they tried through various means, as we talked about last week, to bring about the promise of God in a way that he did not intend. And coming out of where we left off in Genesis chapter 16 last week, if you read the following accounts from chapter 17 through 21, what you find out is that God sends messengers to Abraham to reiterate once again the promise that, no, the the promised child was going to come through Abraham and Sarah. There was no other means by which God was going to provide this inheritance other than through his own miraculous means of provision. And upon hearing that fact, Abraham says, how is this even going to happen? I'm 100 years old at this point. My wife is 90. Are you telling me that at this point in our lives, we're finally going to be given a child? And and the messenger reiterates, this is how it's going to come about. And Sarah, overhearing this conversation, laughs. But as we find in Genesis chapter 22, a son indeed has been born, and his name is Isaac, which actually means laughter. It's fitting because not only was this child going to bring about so much joy for Abraham and Sarah, but it's also a daily reminder for Sarah that she once laughed at the promise of God and now she's enjoying the fulfillment of that promise. And so you can imagine, if you can put yourself in the position of Abraham and Sarah, you can imagine the elation the relief, the joy, the disbelief at God's, at God's grace and provision. And so Abraham and Sarah are soaking up every moment that they have with this boy, and they do all the things that new parents do. They just happen to do it at 90 and 100 years old. 
They watch him as he sleeps, and they, wa- they hear him as he coos, and they watch him take his first steps, and they hear his initial mumbles, and then finally the recognizable words that come out of his mouth, and finally hearing him have full conversations. They witness him grow in wisdom and in stature, and we don't know exactly how old Isaac is at the point in this story in Genesis chapter 22, but all indicators in the text point to him actually being a young man at this point. He's probably a late teenage years, perhaps even early adulthood. They've been enjoying his presence, the comfort of this gift of God, the friendship they have with their son, all the things that go into parenthood. They've been enjoying these things for probably going on 20 years. Here is the promised son who who would deliver the promise of God that he would have offspring numbered like the stars of the sky and then in this moment, seemingly out of nowhere, comes one more follow-up conversation with God. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Now again, because of the familiarity of this story, we read past this and we know how it ends, and so the the startling nature of the instruction of God doesn't necessarily strike our ear as startling, but stop and listen for a moment to the instruction that God just gave. I mean, right off the bat, God recognizes how deep Abraham's love for Isaac is. God knows better than anybody else how much Abraham and Sarah had longed for this child, how they'd prayed for this child, how they'd hoped and wished and dreamed about this child. He knows to the extent that they've gone to try to make the birth of this child happen, and now they finally have him. They can lay eyes on him. They can hug him. They can hold him. They can have conversations with him. And now God says, take your son, your only son whom you love. And the instruction God gives in this text is reminiscent of the first call that Abraham received back in Genesis chapter 12. If you remember, God came to him and said, Abraham, go from your country to a land that I will show you and I'll give you a son. But now he comes to Abraham and he says, go to the land of Moriah to a mountain that I will show you and sacrifice your son. In chapter 12, he's saying, I want you to be willing, Abraham, to sacrifice your family and your comfort and the familiarity of everything you've experienced, your homeland and the familiar language and having extended family nearby and all the joys and comforts that are provided by our hometowns and our upbringings, and I want you to walk away from it, go to someplace you've never seen, and I'm going to give you something far better. In an era where your name meant everything, God called Abraham to give it up to follow him. And in chapter 22, he says, I want you to be willing to sacrifice that same son. Leave him in my hands. Leave the child of the promise on the altar. And in an era where your family name meant everything, Abraham was once again being asked to be willing to trust God with his reputation, his inheritance, his name, everything. Isaac is all that Abraham and Sarah have ever wanted, and now it appears to them that he's going to be taken away. And this is one of those stories where if you try to put yourself in the place of Abraham and Sarah, you just can't even imagine it. 
You just can't imagine it. And the question that immediately comes to mind for us, at least it should in a human context, the question that should come to our minds as we read this is, why? Why is all of this happening? Why would God possibly ask that? Can we admit, if we're honest with ourselves, that at least in our modern reading of this text, this request seems absurd? It seems at least absurd, potentially even cruel. That's how it reads to our eyes. It's how it sits in our souls. It's uncomfortable to imagine that God would ask a father to do this, particularly given the struggles that Abraham and Sarah had experienced. See, the truth is that what Abraham had been asked to do in this moment is about the most difficult thing that anyone could be asked to do. And of course, it was difficult for the obvious reason that Abraham loved his son like he loved nothing else and no one else in his life, and that a father's natural inclination is to provide for and protect their child. But but I think there's something else practically that we can connect to regardless of our age or our stage of life or whether or not we have children in this room. And here's what I mean. In one sense, we all have faith to cling to God when we have not yet experienced His blessing in ways that we had hoped. Does that make sense? When we haven't yet experienced blessing that we've longed for and looked for and hoped for and prayed for, but have not yet had it granted to us, there's always still the hope that God can bring it about. There's always still the hope that, well, God can do amazing, miraculous, generous things. Maybe God can provide for me. Maybe he'll, he'll give me those experiences I've been longing for. Maybe he'll provide me with the spouse that I've always wanted or the child that I was unable to have or the job that I've always dreamed of. And so when you've not experienced the fullness of the blessing that you have always longed for, on some level you can still have a shred of hope, a shred of faith that perhaps God will provide it. And likewise, we can claim our faith in God when everything is going well. When life is good and we're experiencing the blessings, everything that we've ever wanted, everything's going smoothly, our family is good, our health is good, our life circumstances are going exactly how we'd hoped. In those moments, it is easy to espouse our faith for God. Of course God's faithful. Look at my life. Look how richly He's blessed me. But when you face the potential of losing the greatest gift you've ever experienced in this life. That is something that is uniquely terrifying. And for those of you who've lost spouses, parents, children, loved ones, you know that loss and the unique pain that it brings. And this is exactly what Abraham is being faced with. So why would God do this? Why would he ask this? Well, to some extent, we're given the answer right in verse 1. God brought this to Abraham as a test. Now, right off the bat, I think we need to do a little bit of work because that word test is used often within Christianity, and people throw that language around very loosely, but not in a very defined way. We don't often define what we actually mean, and I think for a lot of people, when we talk about the testing of God, we're talking about testing in the, way, in the same way that we view testing through our own limited human understanding. So to be clear that The matter of God allowing things into the life of a believer as a test, I think, is often misunderstood. 
I mean, we'll often hear people say things like, well, I wonder if what I'm experiencing right now is a test from God. And what they usually mean when they say that is, God wants to find out if I'm actually serious about him. The problem with that is God already knows. He already knows your heart. He already knows the future. Remember the way that we've talked about the future, and this idea is certainly not original with us, but it's the idea that the future is not just a thing that God knows, it's a place that He is, that God is not limited in the same way that we are, that He does not experience time in a linear sense the way that we do, but He holds time, creation, the universe in His hands. He sits outside of it, which means that there is nothing that has happened or ever will happen that has escaped God's notice. There is nothing he is waiting to find out to see if it's true. He knows your heart. He knows your intentions. He knows the way that you operate. He knows your affections before you ever do anything about it. So understand that testing is not primarily for God to discover something that he doesn't know. That would mean that inherently God has a liability in his character, and we know that that's not true. There's no reason to think that it's God who lacks certainty. God does not operate in that limited, linear way, but rather when when God calls you to difficult things in your life, when He tests you, He's using it as a means of affirmation and assurance in your life. It's a means of affirmation and assurance in your life. He already knows what's going to happen. He already knows what's true and what's real on the deepest level. Well, what does that actually mean then, that he's providing a test as a means of you understanding or experiencing affirmation and assurance? Well, think about it this way. People usually think about Christianity as a system, a series of doctrines, a series of beliefs, a standard to which we ascribe position statements that we hold. And presumably then, if you ascribe to those particular position statements and you obey the explicit commands of Scripture, that you are then inherently a Christian. But, but that's a misreading of what Christianity actually is. Of course there's doctrine, and of course there are pillars of our belief. Of course those things are true. But what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world and every other philosophy in the world is that it is comprised not primarily by a series of doctrines but by the holy creator God, the God of the universe calling his own creation to himself. It is primarily relational. It's God interacting with his creation, loving, pursuing, chasing, adopting, redeeming, saving those who are lost. And in doing so, he He guarantees His presence and His ultimate blessing in our lives. And that word ultimate is important because there are all kinds of seasons of our life where we don't experience God's blessing in the way that we would expect or hope. There are all kinds of hardships and difficulties and sufferings that we experience. And in those moments, our natural question, in fact, a a right question in, in terms of human experience is, well, where is God's hand of blessing in this? I thought He was a God of blessing. I thought He was generous. I thought He was gracious. I thought He was present. But I don't feel any of those things right now. But remember what God is most after. He is most after your ultimate joy, your ultimate blessing, your eternal hope. He's after what lasts for you eternally, not just temporally. This is what Romans chapter 8 talks about in verse 28. 
which directly ties together this idea of God's calling in your life with his desire for blessing in your life, when Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So when testing comes into our life, it reminds us of where our calling comes from. Testing reveals to us where our hope actually lies. It reveals to us where we are actually anchoring our soul. Because we can claim our faith, our hope, our security rests in God, but moments of testing, moments of trial will reveal whether or not that's actually true. When each of my kids was, was little, and my daughter is still young enough to do this, one of the things that they loved to, to do was to be spun around. Do you ever do that with your kids or with someone's kid? Hopefully with permission, right? Pick them up and you kind of grab them underneath their armpits and you swing them around and their legs are kind of flailing all over the place. And, and for my kids, they loved this. In fact, they mostly still love it to the extent that I can pick my oldest up and actually do that without getting dizzy. They still love it because eventually when you get enough momentum and you get your footwork working just right, you're swinging so fast that you lose your own disorient. You're kind of disoriented in your own mind as to where you are in the room and you start to get that dizzy feeling, but you've got enough momentum that they're really moving and the kids are giggling. And what happens in that moment? moment. In that moment, the kids grab on and they hold on like grim death, right? Because they're scared in that moment that they're going to go flying across the room. And so I'll hold on to them and I've got my grip on them, but I can feel their grip tightening on me. Even when things feel out of control to them, for me, it's absolutely in control. I know the grip that I have on them. I know where my feet are in the room. I know I'm not going to bash them into a wall. I'm not going to let them accidentally go sailing into the hallway. But that sense of spinning, that sense of being out of control, causes them to cling tighter to me. And in some sense, that's what testing does in our life. It reveals where our safety and our hope actually rests. In some sense, Testing serves to pry our fingers from the things that cannot provide our security and plant them firmly onto Christ. See, Abraham was uniquely positioned in all of human history. A promise had been made to Abraham that had not been made to anyone before or anybody since. He was to be the father of the covenant the individual through which God was going to make a whole new nation and a whole new people where there was going to be spiritual adoption throughout time. People being brought into this family. Blessing was going to be brought into the world through his line, and that role required, as one theologian states it, a test without parallel. So look then how Abraham responds, verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, what's, what's going on here? Facing the most challenging and potentially heart-rending test of his entire life, he gets up early in the morning, in other words, without delay, 
This is the first thing he does after the instruction of God is given to him. He gathers the implements that are necessary for the burnt offering, and he and Isaac and two others from his party head off into the mountains that God is is leading them into. But then Abraham says something here that gives us insight into where his heart is. Verse 5, then Abraham said to the young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come back to you. Abraham in this moment has an absolute certainty that somehow he and Isaac are going to return to this point. He states it here unequivocally. My son and I, we're going to go off into the mountains. We're going to worship God. All of that was undoubtedly true. And he has such confidence in the deliverance and the provision of God that he says, and we are going to meet you right back here. Hebrews chapter 11, which is known as the hall of faith or the hall of fame of faith, gives us insight into this particular moment in Abraham's life. Here's what it says in verse 17 of that chapter. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Listen to this, verse 19. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, the author of Hebrews is giving us an indication through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Hebrews chapter 11 as to what's going on in the very heart of Abraham in this moment. Here's what he's saying. He's saying Abraham went into this conversation so sure, so certain, so convinced of the deliverance and the provision of God that that Abraham knew that even if it meant God bringing Isaac back from the dead, that's what was going to happen. So when God called Abraham to make the sacrifice in verse 1, he said, take your son, your only son Isaac. And when he said that, he wasn't giving Abraham information that he didn't already have. Abraham knew that Isaac was his only son. But when he says, your only son, what God is saying is, Isaac is the child of the promise. He is the one through whom this line is going to descend. It was a guarantee of his survival, a guarantee of his lineage. God was saying, Isaac is the fulfillment of the calling that I gave to you. He is the evidence of my faithfulness to you, and therefore, Abraham, you can be assured of my continued goodness to you, no matter what I call you to. And that call could have just as easily stirred up all sorts of bitterness and resentment in the heart of Abraham. And I would just ask you to answer in your own mind, if you were put into that position, what would it have done to your heart? Because I will confess to you that as I thought about that question, if God came to me with this exact same instruction, I couldn't do it. To trust God with that that he is that great and that good, as I thought about it in my own heart this week, my heart would be turned to resentment, particularly if I had been experiencing what Abraham had experienced. I'm a hundred years old. I've been waiting my whole life for this. My wife and I have longed for this, and now you're going to ask me to give up this son? 
But God had showed himself so faithful and so good that Abraham is saying through his actions, I don't know how and I don't know why, but what I know is that I can trust God in this implicitly. The boy and I will return after we worship. Something has shifted in Abraham. This is the same man who just a few few chapters earlier didn't trust God to protect he and Sarah when they entered Egypt. He didn't trust God to provide his child and therefore manipulated circumstances with Hagar in, in order to try to force God's hand. He so doubted God's goodness that he thought it was up to him to make his own way. But now, in this moment, he has experienced unequivocally God's incredible graciousness and faithfulness. And so his heart is not turned towards resentment. It's not turned towards bitterness. His heart is turned towards absolute confidence in God's goodness, no matter what is about to happen. As one theologian stated it, the patriarch, that's a reference to Abraham, chooses here the gift over the giver. Or rather, the giver over the gift, pardon me. He chooses the giver over the gift, relying on the Lord to make good on his promise. And that's the opposite of what Abraham had done to that point. Abraham had chosen trying to protect his wife through his own methods and in the process doubting the goodness and the faithfulness of God. He had doubted the goodness and the faithfulness of God and and therefore sinned with Hagar. But in this moment, he's saying, no, God, you are the greater giver. You are greater than the gift. And therefore, I have to love you more and I have to trust you more. Now, look what happens. Verse 6. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father... And he said, here I am, my son. Isaac said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Now picture in your mind what's happening because I never noticed this before and maybe you have, but it blew me away this week. Abraham takes the wood off of the back of the donkey the wood that was intended for the burnt offering, and he lays it on the back of Isaac, and Isaac walks up the hill with this load of wood on his back, going to his own potential death. Does that remind you of anything? I don't think it's a coincidence that this imagery brings to mind Jesus himself. Here, the sacrificial lamb carries the implement of his own pending death to the place of his own sacrifice. And even knowing the outcome of this story, you can feel the tension in this text. But the confidence of Abraham in this moment is in the, in, is in the provision of God. And look what happens, verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Now, here's where we get some insight into Isaac, and we're going to look at him more in depth in coming weeks. It would appear that Isaac is a strong young man. We don't know his age, but we know that he's having a full-grown adult conversation with his father. He's observant enough to realize that his father has brought everything for the sacrifice other than the lamb, and he's physically capable to carry a donkey load of wood up a mountain. 
He is a physically capable young man. He was certainly strong enough to fight against his 120-year-old father if he had desired to. But it would appear that the faith that had grown in Abraham over these 45 years had an impact on his son. Because Isaac doesn't fight. He so trusts his own father's goodness and he so trusts God's provision that he allows himself to be bound and laid on the altar. Foreshadowing once again. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now this is a terrifying and uncomfortable verse. And I think we need to acknowledge that but we also need to remember what's going on. Came across one commentary this week that was particularly helpful, and this commentator pointed out that, that, G, that, that God didn't just instruct Abraham to slaughter his son. Did you notice that? The instruction here was never just, hey, Abraham, why don't you go slaughter your son? No, the instruction here was to go offer his own son as a sacrifice. If God would have just commanded murder, that would have countered the very character of God himself. It would have been inherently unjust. But remember here, the culture that's going on, the culture of the Old Testament and the culture of this particular age, all throughout the Old Testament, God indicates that the first fruits of everything belong to him. The first fruits of the field, the firstborn, uh, the, the firstborn of the flock, uh, all of these different imagery, all this different imagery that we find in the Old Testament points to the idea that the first fruits of everything belongs to God, up to and including the story of the Passover itself, in which we're told that an angel of death was going to, be pa- was going to pass over Egypt, and, and the firstborn son of each family was going to be taken as a demonstration of the sincerity of mankind's sin against God. Now to all of us, this is, this is ancient and theoretical, and it feels very far removed from our experience, but to Abraham, this was the very air that he breathed. He understood the symbolic nature of what was happening here. And so God didn't say, go kill Isaac. What he says is, I want you to take your firstborn, the one who belongs to me already, the one who was given to you by me, the one who comes from me, and I want you to acknowledge that I, as the giver, am greater than any gift that I give to you. And as a father of three children, I admit that this is what's hard for me. Because my love and my affection for my kids runs so deep. And I've had the conversation with my boys in particular a couple of times trying to explain to them in a way that I'm not sure that they understand that in order to be able to love them as well as I'm able, I need to actually love God more than I love them. It's a hard thing to explain to a kid. It's an even harder thing for an adult to do. But on a much smaller scale, it's the same thing that Abraham is communicating here. See, God is not saying here, destroy the good things that I gave you to enjoy, but rather what he's saying to Abraham is, recognize the source of all of these good things. Recognize my provision. Recognize the blessing I poured out on you. Recognize that I've responded to your sin once again with grace. But in order for God to be God, there had to be justice. There had to be payment for sin. There had to be atonement for sin. 
In other words, if God doesn't address sin, if he tried to extend grace and forgiveness and mercy without the penalty for sin being paid, he would no longer be just. And in a world that is constantly crying out, both literally and figuratively, for justice, it would not be right to have an unjust God. We need his justice just as much as we need his love. But what that means is that in order to escape the wrath of God, provision had to be made. A sacrifice had to be made. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. If you wanted to put up a sub-theme for Abraham's life, it would be this. The Lord will provide. Just as Abraham is raising up the knife, God provides a stand-in, a substitution, a sacrifice. God provides a sacrifice to remove sin and for Abraham to recognize God's position in his life as the good gift giver. And in the end, God did exactly what he'd promised he would do. He gave and protected the child of promise to Abraham. He delivered through Isaac the inheritance, the family, the spiritual blessing, the material gifts that Abraham had been promised some 45 years earlier. See, God may not always provide what we want when we want it, but he always provides what we most desperately need when we most need it. So brother and sister, let me ask, what is it that you think God cannot provide? What is it that you think you have to make work on your own? What maneuvers are you trying to execute in your life to bring happiness in? To what has God called you, listen, To what has God called you that seems too hard to bear? Even as he's trying to teach you that he's enough and that he's good. And I ask that question with humility, realizing that there are people in this room who have suffered and are suffering infinitely more than I have. Maybe for you, like Abraham, it's a child. A child you didn't have that you desperately wanted, a child that you lost, a child who's wandered. Maybe it's a relationship that fell apart or a marriage that's on the rocks. Maybe it's some other situation in your life that is so messy and so painful that you don't see a way out. the difficult but assuring promise of God is that when life feels like it's spinning out of control for you, 
and you're reaching for something to cling to, he already has a firm grip on you and your situation. We may be called to walk through uniquely painful circumstances in our life, but the lesson of Abraham, at least in part, is that the same God who has proven himself faithful in a million small ways in your life will also be faithful in the middle of the big things. And to the extent that you or I wonder about his goodness or wonder how we would handle a test like Abraham faced, like I did this week, to the extent that we wonder about his kindness and his gentleness and his concern for justice, God has given us a perfect picture of his unending love for us. Because there was another innocent son who was given. There was another innocent son who carried the wood on his back to the place of his own sacrifice. There was another son who did not fight against his father's calling, but willingly went to the cross to die. And the ram that was given to Abraham was symbolic of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for you and for me. It was the guarantee of God's love for you. The guarantee that in the moment that seems hardest in your life, where everything you value and care about and find your identity in is most threatened, that in that exact moment you can be assured of the presence and the love of an almighty and loving Father for you. As one pastor said it, listen closely to these words. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me, now we can look at God taking his son up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from us. That he gave his only begotten son, his most beloved son, the perfect confidant, the perfect friend, the eternally present Jesus, he took that son and gave him up willingly for you and for me. The guarantee and the substitution so that you can know for sure the love of the Father for you. So that you can be assured that no matter what hardship or difficulty we face in this life, God intends nothing but our flourishing and blessing that he forgave our sin, that he sealed our pardon, that he signed our adoption with the blood of Jesus Christ. So rest sure, brother and sister, that he will not test you for the purpose of your displeasure or for the purpose of determining his love for you, 
but for the purpose of assuring you and affirming you of your position in him. And when we doubt and wonder, all we need to do is look to the cross. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for a startling text. God, one that kicks against our sensibilities. It kicks against our affections. It kicks, kicks against what's natural to us. And that's because the most natural thing in the world is for a father to love his son. But God, you did what was most unexpected. You who are perfect in love, you who love with an immutable, unchangeable, eternal, infinite love, and expressed that love towards your son, gave that same son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be assured that we are sons and that we are daughters, so that we could be assured of our position, so that we could be assured of our acceptance. God, would you help us to realize that our identity as Christians is not first found in our doctrinal statement, though that's vitally important. And it's not just found in our system of belief, though we are thankful for the structure that you give us in your word about what it is we are to believe. But we thank you that our position as sons and daughters is established first and foremost by the fact that we find ourselves as lost and dying sinners being called into sonship and into daughterhood. That you called us into relationship with you. That you sent your son to die on our behalf and to raise from the dead to give us eternal life. That what Abraham hoped and expected would happen at the sacrifice of Isaac, the resurrection of his son, did happen perfectly in Jesus. And because of his death and resurrection, we can now stand assured of our position in you because relationally you've called us to ourselves. So God, help us to grow in our faith. But more than that, help us to rest assured of the object of our faith that no matter how small our faith may be, if it rests in the perfect and sure rock of our Savior, it is an unmoving anchor in the middle of the hardships of life. So God, hold us safe and secure, even as we weakly fail to try to cling to you and help us rest in the confidence that you have us not only now, but eternally for the purpose of our joy in your presence. God, do in us this morning what we are unable to do for ourselves, and we'll give you all the praise and the honor and glory for it. Amen.